From NPR News, this is Foreign Dispatch, a weekly roundup of some of the best coverage of news and events filed by NPR correspondents from around the globe. I'm Jonathan Blakely. This week, China's economic win streak, fears of anarchy in Libya, tracking Nazi music in Germany, and Santa's early arrival in Venezuela. How do you keep the world's longest economic win streak alive? That's the question China's leaders face at a meeting that opens this weekend in Beijing. It's the most important of its kind in years. And for the planet's second largest economy, a lot hangs in the balance. Here's NPR's Frank Langfitt. The meeting has one of those soporific Communist Party names, the third plenary session of the 18th CPC Central Committee. But in the past, meetings like this have been game changers. Take the one in 1978, when Deng Xiaoping officially shut the door on the chaotic Mao era. They said the focus of our policy efforts should shift from political struggle to economic construction. Barry Naughton is a professor who studies China's economy at the University of California, San Diego. And that was so fundamental that it was used to drive just a range in policy across the board. And set the stage for China's transformation from a totalitarian basket case to economic powerhouse. The question is whether policymakers meeting today can muster the same kind of resolve and the same kind of willingness to overcome interest groups uh, in the way that that made sense uh, 35 years ago. If they don't deliver on economic reform, I think they basically lose credibility to a very substantial degree. China's economy is at a turning point. The old model, low-wage labor, cheap exports, and heavy investment in things like roads, is running out of steam. To keep growth on track, the country's leaders say the economy must become more efficient and rely more on Chinese people buying Chinese products and services. I'm Andy Rothman, the China economist for the brokerage firm CLSA. Rothman says one way to do that is to change the country's restrictive residency system that denies urban rights to rural migrants. Reform would allow migrants who built China's modern cities to live in them permanently. They would enjoy government benefits and more security and probably be more willing to spend money and drive the economy. On this reform, Rothman's pretty optimistic. Next year, they'll start rolling out gradually a program to end the legalized discrimination against the migrant workers. Uh, This means treating them the same as people with an urban residence permit in terms of things like health care and education. Why haven't they been treated the same? It's just a lot of money. And also there are vested interests at play. If you talk to people here in Shanghai and ask them, do you think it's fair to discriminate against these migrant workers? They'd say, of course not. But then when you remind them that this might increase competition for school spaces, well, they get a little bit nervous about that. In fact, the reason it's so hard to push reform here is there are now so many powerful vested interests against it. Take China's giant state-owned enterprises, which everyone here just calls SOEs for short. The SOE, uh, they are monopoly uh, in many industries, and, uh, and it is a big obstacle to innovation and a fair competition. Gary Liu helps run a financial think tank at the China-Europe International Business School here in Shanghai. He says reducing the power of state-owned enterprises in the lucrative sectors they dominate, such as telecoms and energy, is tough because so many people benefit from the current setup. The government officials, they find SOE is a very convenient tool uh, to make money 
for themselves, for their good friends, and for their fam- family members. So if you want to change that, uh, it is a big test for the political will of the leaders. So my, uh, my uh, expectation for SOE reform is not very high. Leo says failure to reform SOEs will disappoint many Chinese people, who often complain that SOE officials and employees enjoy high wages and overly generous benefits because of their government-granted monopolies. We all know that Chinese people, despite the quick economic growth, we don't feel happy. Why? Because we don't feel fair. And SOE is one key source of unfairness. At the end of the four-day plenary session, economists expect China's leaders to release a vaguely worded report to call for broad economic reform, but within limits. After that, the Communist Party faces an even bigger challenge, implementing its decisions. Frank Langford, NPR News, Shanghai. To Libya now, where more than two years have passed since the fall of Muammar Gaddafi, and there are fears the country is slipping into anarchy. Analysts describe a North African nation that's awash with heavy weapons in the hands of militias that are divided by tribe, ideology, and region. The central government has little power over the gunmen. That was made clear last month when the prime minister was kidnapped by one militia and freed by another. NPR's Leila Fadl reports. We start in Zintan. It is a mountain town in northwestern Libya. There are about 50,000 people here. It is a place of gray and brown buildings with little infrastructure. The central government doesn't provide basic services, not even water. People use wells to provide for themselves. The local council runs all of Zintan's affairs out of this building in the center of town. And, as in much of Libya, the central government has zero power here. We head to the local militia base on the outskirts of Zintan. There, we meet the keeper of Saif al-Islam Gaddafi, the son and one-time Arab parent of Muammar Gaddafi. Saif is wanted by the International Criminal Court for crimes against humanity. The central government wants him to stand trial in the capital. But the commander of Zintan's militia, Ajmi Atiri, won't give him up. Ajmi says, we caught Saif and we're responsible for him. He says, the government in Tripoli isn't worthy of taking him off our hands. Hashmi Atiri is a small man in his 50s. He was a teacher when Gaddafi demanded volunteers from Zintan to fight rebels in the east. Atiri and the rest of the town refused and launched their own rebellion against the Libyan leader, who was slain by revolutionaries just over two years ago. Now, Hatiri is Zintan's boss. He and his men are paid by the state. But like most of Libya's militias, they are loyal mostly to themselves. There are men like Hatiri across the country who believe they know what's best for Libya. They are former teachers, engineers, and political exiles whose power is now unrivaled and who are unwilling to relinquish it to the state. Just this week, rival militias engaged in an hours-long shootout in Tripoli, captured by cell phone cameras posted on YouTube. Without security, the organs of the state barely function. Ajmi says government leaders spend their time fighting over power and money, and they're trying to use the militias to get what they want. 
He scoffs at other militias, calling them criminals. He says his own militia is different. It's looking out for Libya. But he says this is not the Libya he fought for in the uprising against Gaddafi. Back in Tripoli, we meet the justice minister, Salah Bashir Mergani, in his office. I tried to meet you last time I came, but you were in the middle of a crisis. So. Well, we're still in the middle and of a crisis. <laughs> no, no change. <laughs> For Mergani, every day brings a crisis. He escaped a kidnapping attempt in September. In the spring, he was kicked out of his office by militias demanding passage of a law that put hundreds of judges out of work. Last month, he worked the phones urgently after Prime Minister Ali Zaydan was briefly kidnapped by one militia and freed by another. When I called that attorney general at 5 o'clock in the morning saying, have you arrested the prime minister? I said, what? <laughs> of course he said, no, I didn't. Do you think I'm crazy? Margani laughs a lot. It masks the deep worries he has about the future of Libya. The government, he says, needs to secure the country. But right now, it just can't. This is the real danger, that whatever we do is absorbed by the deterioration in the situation we deal with. Next day, we have the next crisis. It's like waking every morning, asking what kind of disaster do we have today. The state has no viable security forces, so the government doesn't have the ability to rein in the militias. So they act as the country's de facto security forces. They basically run the two security ministries. Margani says hopes for judicial and other reforms are on the back burner while the militias act with impunity. The idea is that we should not allow Libya to slip into chaos or to slip into, say, a Somalia-like situation or an Afghanistan-like situation. This is too bad for Libya. And Libya, he says, desperately needs help. We are like someone who is drowning, but he can see the shoreline. So we're trying to swim to that shoreline. That's why we need help. Help he hopes to get from the international community. He says some 18,000 Libyans will be trained, some in the U.S., to become Libya's new army and police force. But in the interim, militiamen with anti-aircraft guns roam the streets. They are still committing very bad things like murder, uh, torture, uh, all evil things that those young guys shouldn't be doing. Back on the streets of Tripoli, there are militia checkpoints everywhere, manned by former rebels from different parts of the country, carving out their own little fiefdoms. And ordinary Libyans are getting sick of it. And their anger is not just directed at the militias. Outside the parliament building, a female protester screams into a bullhorn. The members of parliament are monsters, she says. They're ruining our country. The economy is suffering, and the nation is fracturing, says Human Rights Watch Libya researcher Hanan Salah. She says part of the problem is NATO helped Libyans remove Gaddafi, but then did very little to help secure the borders, secure weapons, or rein in the thousands of armed men who fought. If you look at the political situation, you have a very weak government that is you know, hardly able to implement any of what it should be doing, and is certainly not in control of its own institutions. And she says... There is a real danger of total anarchy. Leila Fadel, NPR News. In Germany, neo-Nazi music is a pervasive problem. 
Government officials there say the songs aid recruitment of young people into extremist groups. The German office in charge of enforcing the constitution that bans Nazi glorification says there are more than 180 right-wing bans it's tracking. But officials say banning such music to protect Germany's young people isn't as easy as it once was because musicians are increasingly sly about what they put out. NPR's Soraya Sahardi Nelson reports from Berlin. Felix Beneckenstein spent 10 years writing and performing neo-Nazi songs, but not the kind you might think. Like this ballad called Desire for Freedom. Beneckenstein, whose stage name was Flex, sings all people are entitled to freedom. He says he's ready to rise up against whatever stands in his way and has the right to start a revolution. His lyrics are subtle. They aren't openly racist, nor do they glorify violence, as is often the case with neo-Nazi songs. Like this one called "Hunting Season" by the group Burning Hate, it talks about beating one's victim bloody and senseless. But Neckenstein says there's a good reason to be more mainstream, to lure people who would never go near the hardcore stuff, much of which is banned in Germany. But Neckenstein left the neo-Nazi music scene three years ago after what he describes as an epiphany during a brief jail stint. The 27-year-old Munich resident now spends his days warning German youth about the danger of far-right music. Nach außen hin ist die Nazi-Musikszene um, sehr He says a growing number of extremist songs sound harmless with messages that appeal to teens. Some songwriters linked to the far right, like DX, use styles of music actually opposed by the neo-Nazi movement, including rap. Daniel Kurlo, who heads research at the Institute for the Study of Radical Movements, says neo-Nazi musicians are using a growing number of music styles. And this is just simple matter of demand, really. If if you find out that this is something the kids like, then you do it. Kurlo says, given the German ban on hate speech, a lot of recording of extremist music is done abroad in Sweden, Poland, and even the United States. The researcher says music is key to radicalizing German youth and getting them to join far-right movements. That is very important to understand that music is not just a recruitment tool, but also a very important tool for financing infrastructure, networks, and um, to buy guns and to buy explosives and to sustain militant groups. He adds, one group that benefited financially from extremist music is the National Socialist Underground. Its sole surviving member is on trial in Munich in connection with the murder of 10 people, most of them ethnically Turkish. German authorities try to fight back by banning records and groups deemed dangerous. Elke Monsen Engbading, who heads the government agency that monitors fascist music, says there are more than 1,250 songs on the ban list. She says there will be more neo-Nazi songs on that list, except that so many of the lyrics these days are mainstream. That ties authorities' hands because they can't ban something that doesn't violate German law. Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, NPR News, Berlin. Coming up. Why the Vatican is on the cricket pitch, and even in early November, it's Christmas time in Venezuela.
This is Foreign Dispatch. I'm Jonathan Blakely. Five hundred years after the English king Henry VIII broke with the church in Rome, the Vatican is vowing to defeat the Church of England. Not in the pews, but on the cricket pitch. NPR's Sylvia Pajoli reports the Vatican has launched its own cricket club, a move aimed at forging ties with teams of other faiths. Rome's Capanelle Cricket Club is hosting training matches that will lead to the creation of the Vatican team, the St. Peter's Cricket Club. The Catholic Church has long championed sports as good for mind, body and soul. And one of the players here, Sri Lankan seminarian Anthony Fernando, says sports are particularly important for those aspiring to the priesthood. Learn a lot of things in sports to accept both victory and defeat in the life of priesthood. We need to accept things because in the future, as a priest, we know the things are not going to be that easy. The Vatican already has its Clericus Cup soccer tournament, which pitches the Swiss guards against seminarians. Now its cricket team will sport the official colors of the tiny city-state, yellow and white, and players' jackets will have the seal of the papacy, two crossed keys. The image many people have of cricket is that of aristocrats in white playing on country estates. But sponsors of the Vatican Initiative say that image is very dated. Today, cricket is one of the world's most popular sports. Francis J. Araja is a Sri Lankan and president of Italy's national cricket team. He says the latest Vatican Initiative can count on up to 350 potential players, priests and seminarians from cricket-playing countries who live and study in Rome. Indians and Pakistanis, Australians and New Zealanders. So during their leisure time, they play cricket in their small football ground in various colleges. One of those colleges is Mater Ecclesia. The spiritual director, Father Eamon O'Higgins, is an enthusiastic sports fan. In sport, competitive sport you combat, you're taking on an opposition, there's a challenge, and the aim is to win. But Father O'Higgins says the creation of the Vatican cricket team also has a broader purpose, forging interfaith relations by taking on teams of Hindus and Muslims. This is also in line with Pope Francis's vision of outreach. Pope Francis has wanted to globalize the church so that there's an international representation here of all the different cultures throughout the world. And cricket... In particular, this project has made such an impact, a vast impact, on cultures that perhaps are not always or have not always been represented sufficiently here. More immediately, Father O'Higgins says the Vatican team has laid down its first challenge to the Church of England and has asked for a match at Lord's Cricket Ground in London, known as the home of the sport. That's going to be historic. Who knows what can happen there more than just a cricket match. September next year is the tentative date for a match pitting the Vatican against the Anglicans. Silvio Poggioli, NPR News, Rome. There's still a couple of weeks before Americans celebrate Thanksgiving, but in Venezuela, the president has declared it's Christmas season already. NPR South American correspondent Lourdes Garcia Navarro explains why he's eager to put his country in a good mood. 
President Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela came out with a surprise announcement during the so-called Socialist Christmas Fair in central Caracas. The ostensible aim is to lift people's spirits, and it comes with a cash dividend. State workers will be getting the first two-thirds of their Christmas bonuses this month, too. A few weeks ago, Maduro also created a Ministry of Supreme Happiness. In comments after the Christmas announcement, Maduro explained his motives. We made Christmas earlier because happiness and the nativity and waiting for the arrival of the baby Jesus, it is the best medicine. But analysts say there is another reason for the president's new interest in making his countrymen feel the spirit of Christmas. Municipal elections are slated in early December, and there'll be the first referendum on Maduro's presidency, which he won by the slimmest of margins last spring. Things haven't been going well in Venezuela. Inflation is running at 45 percent. There are frequent blackouts and rampant crime. The new president also doesn't seem to have the charisma of his former mentor, Hugo Chavez. And so he seems intent on invoking Chavez whenever he can. In one of the more bizarre recent episodes, he went on live TV praising construction workers who claimed they saw the image of Chavez appear, like the Virgin Mary, in one of the underground railways being worked on. Chavez is everywhere, he said. We are Chavez, you are Chavez. He's also declared a loyalty and love to Hugo Chavez Day. Even the intercession of a divine Hugo Chavez, though, won't help understocked stores this now longer holiday season. Importers say that foreign currency restrictions mean there will be a shortage of toys this Christmas. Lourdes Garcia Navarro, NPR News. For more international coverage, you can listen to your local NPR station. You'll find a list at our website, npr.org. And while you're there, you can find more international stories by clicking on Topics and World. For NPR News, I'm Jonathan Blake.